Have you ever had such an amazing, immersive experience? Whether a theme park attraction or an interactive display of some sort at a museum? And you've been so awed by your surroundings that you've wondered, how did they do that? Well, there are people and companies that work in experiential marketing to ensure that the guest is fully immersed in the environment. And they do this with visual elements, sound design, maybe even smoke or pyrotechnics, and even scent to transport guests into another world. And it all starts with a purpose, a story. Stick around and learn more about how it comes together as we welcome the Chief Innovation Officer at Storyland Studios, Matt Ferguson, to this episode of the Marketing Chief Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Chief Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Collins. Before we get started, if you'd like to watch this podcast and not just listen to it, head over to our website at marketingchiefpodcast.com and click on the Episodes tab or search for Marketing Chief Podcast on YouTube. Today, I'm really privileged and pleased to have the Chief Innovation Officer at Storyland Studios join us on the Marketing Chief Podcast. Welcome, Matt Ferguson. Matt, how are you doing today? Good, Rob. Great to be here, man. Thank, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. I'd love to know more about Storyland. I've been in the experiential marketing arena for, for quite a few years. I'm aware of Storyland, but it seems like recently you guys have really been amping up the game with your hire, with a new executive creative director hire. Uh, tell us about what Storyland Studios is all about. Yeah, at our core, we're a storytelling company, and we recognize that as humans, we're just wired to receive stories. Um, so we like to say we, we tell stories in three dimensions, and those three dimensions are strategic, digital, and spatial. So strategic is, you know, is your brand story, who you are as a company or an organization. Digital is anything from websites to apps to AR, VR, anything in the virtual world. And then spatial is physical space. So we, we do everything from design office headquarters and immersive factory tours for companies to uh, full-on theme parks. And so we've got this band of former Universal Studios creatives and Disney Imagineers and marketeers like myself that uh, really any organization can hire uh, if they want a little bit of that magic. And what's your role specifically as, as a chief innovation officer? Uh, boy, that sounds like a, a daunting, but really fun task. I'll be leading the, the studio operations of our business, that, that uh, strategic digital and spatial storytelling. We have a fabrication shop. We have uh, uh, software companies, but I'm really going to be leading that core professional services practice and innovating on behalf of our clients. So that'll be my my main leadership role. Wow, that sounds like a fun job. Yeah, yeah. So far, so good. I mean, we've got a bunch of great companies that we work with. And like I said, it's not, it's not all theme park stuff. Like we, you know, we do, we do work for uh, Disney and Universal and uh, Cedar Fair and Hershen, a couple of your former uh, employers uh, uh, on a variety of projects. But we also work with developers that have never done anything kind of theme park or attraction before and they can lean on us for that that experience and we're working on the two from the ground up theme parks that are going up in the U.S. yet to be announced so I can't mm -hmm. really get into those but uh, uh, recently came out that we're working with a, a theme park called Ghost Town in the Sky that has been closed for 10 years it's in the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina and we're going to uh, revive that park so uh, we get to work on a lot of fun stuff yeah. So for, for companies like a Universal or like a Disney, uh, a large entertainment conglomerate that has resources 
left and right. How do they plug you in and, and what service do you offer them that they don't have in-house? Yeah, obviously, I mean, the Walt Disney Imagineering team, for example, has more than 100 disciplines in-house and uh, they're not leaning on us for the core storytelling as much. Um, they're, you know, they usually will lean on us for uh, fabrication work. I mean, when they're building, a, a, you know, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, for example, that, that's a lot of work to get all that rock work done to build a Millennium Falcon. I mean, it, no company can, you know, staff up enough to do all of that in-house. So then it spills over into companies like ours. You know, we designed the designed and built the Hogwarts Express for Universal Studios. Uh, contributed to that beautiful land. Obviously, gorgeous. Universal Creative was the creative force behind that and, and the storytelling part. But but we come alongside them because we speak the same language that they do in terms of storytelling and creative excellence and design excellence. And so they can plug right into us. They've got people that they probably worked with before at Universal or Disney, and we know what to do and, and get it done. And when you come up with stories for attractions or even theme parks as a whole, are you generally starting from scratch or are you using someone else's intellectual property and kind of expanding on that and telling a different angle of that story? Yeah, you know, it can go either way. Like, um, obviously, there's a lot of built in IP when you work on a, a universal park or, or a Disney park. That's right. And on, on the other hand, um, We've designed experiences from scratch that are just based on whatever the owner's vision was that they wanted to accomplish. So uh, both are equally fun because, you know, when you're working with existing IP, you've got sort of a place to start. And, uh, you know, how do we bring this movie to life in a physical space? But then, you know, when you're starting from scratch, the world is your oyster. You know, you can pretty much come up with anything you want. Uh, for, for our new Ghost Town project, for example, you know, we're just getting started on that, but that park has a heritage to it. And we're going to have to really respect that heritage. We want people to walk in and and experience everything they remember about Ghost Town. But then what people probably don't remember about Ghost Town is that there, there was a cool like Western town and, and uh, you know, all of the things that go with the Western town. But the rides were really kind of like uh, carnival rides. <laughs> so we're going to try to uh, do something more with those rides than just, you know, j just uh, plop in some standard rides. We're going to add some storytelling to it. Let's talk about uh, IP. And you've mentioned IP a couple of times. And just for those, uh, to make sure everyone's familiar, IP is intellectual property. That is really the, the rights to the content. And when you talk about IP, how do you interact with the brand holder? Yeah, I mean, generally those conversations start uh, when... The, that IP owner has an interest in seeing their their movie, their story, their book uh, be manifest in a, in a physical space for their uh, for their fans, and yet they may not physically own a theme park or or have any interest in building one. And so, generally, those are licensing agreements to where, uh, you know, yes, I'd like to see this thing come to life in the real world, and. Uh, and we're going to uh, make a deal with you, Universal, or you, Disney. Um, a, lot, a lot of people may not think about that, the fact that there's a world of Pandora, Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, that, uh, you know, that, that whole movie is not a Disney property. It's a licensing agreement.
Now, it's interesting because most of your career has been in the advertising side, but you actually started at Walt Disney World back in the day. What were you doing then? I was uh, the head of advertising during the launch of the ESPN Wide World of Sports and also had the opportunity to work on their integrated marketing plan to launch that. And then I moved on to the Walt Disney World brand, working on national advertising programs for uh, for the destination. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. I, I, I do have kind of this propensity for thinking about the big picture and integrated marketing. So I ended up in kind of during our planning cycle, leading integrated marketing communications for the destination as well. Uh, just got a lot of really cool opportunities at a, at a very young age. Uh, I helped lead a uh, uh, a session where we uh, came up with the brand positioning for our Walt Disney World resorts, where you could stay in the middle of the magic, never have to leave the magic the whole time you were there. So it just had some really cool assignments and it was just a real uh, crazy time to be there because of all that was happening. You know, we had a major anniversary at Walt Disney World. We launched Animal Kingdom Park. I can't tell you how many new resorts we opened while I was there. And then we planned the millennium celebration. Uh, so it was just kind of like a, a, a grad school, so to speak, that was just packed with so many great opportunities. I'm going to lead the witness here, and I'm not sure you know where I'm going with this. Uh-oh. What were your big competitive issues at that time? Well, Universal Studios, where, okay. you know, Rob Collins and his crew were doing a great <laughs> job of of marketing. I didn't know um, if you knew I was there at that time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I realized later that we were on opposite sides of the theme park battle during theme the same battle. during the same years. Yeah. Yeah. You guys probably looked at us as the evil empire and we we thought Universal was the bad guy. You know, it was all in fun and there were people people Somewhat. moving back and forth between organizations too. But uh but uh yeah I mean you know Disney uh I, I don't know what the spend is now but Disney uh, spent more in, in national advertising at the time. And then Universal would like pour a lot of resources into these three-dimensional billboards as soon as you got off the airplane to just sort of uh, make people think about, oh, am I going to spend every day at Disney on my vacation or not? Maybe I'm going to go to Universal. And so there was this, this sort of friendly battle that ultimately I think that kind of competition uh, makes everybody better. So uh uh, yeah, it was kind of fun to uh, to be a part of that. It's kind of like the Cola Wars, you know, back in the day, Pepsi and Coke. That's right. It's 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 funny to hear you say that about the about the outdoor program uh, because that was exactly our plan. Our plan was let Disney spend all the big money to bring people to Orlando, and then because we at that time had one one theme park, just Universal Studios Florida how do we then capture a day or a half a day of their visit? And so we just did guerrilla marketing as much as we could, kind of owned outdoor at that time. I think this was, this yes. is, this was the thing that I, I was, was always told and I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective. We thought at that time that Disney felt like out of home was too pedestrian for their brand. And so that's why you weren't in out of home. Is that at all accurate or is that just a, a, an old fable? 
by the time we got there, we were we were doing a significant amount of outdoor. Okay. Um, I didn't work on that as much because that was more uh, the uh, the individual parks marketing. Yes. And, right. and downtown Disney uh, did the the outdoor, but I worked on the the national destination advertising, and my job was to get people. Uh, locked in to a Disney vacation throughout the entire stay where they were staying on property. You know, it was too hard to go off property to go to SeaWorld or Universal. And, uh, it, you know, you're you're locked in for uh, tickets the whole time you're there that are tied to your hotel room. So hopefully we we kept them there on property. And, the, and actually the positive benefit of that was guests who had an, a vacation like that uh, had better guest satisfaction on the other end because we took care of their transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, they never had to get off on, you know, I-4 and drive anywhere. Uh, so they had a more pleasant time. So that was our, that was our goal. It was to sort of lock in that commitment to the, to an entirely immersive Disney vacation the whole time they were there. So that was our strategy. And it worked very well. It frustrated us to no end. You would, you would pick them up at the airport, take them out to Walt Disney World Resort, and we'd never have a chance to grab a day of their vacation. We had more luck with obviously people along I Drive and other areas that were staying there. Fun that we've never we've never had this conversation about, yeah, we never about, have. about okay. being on the opposite side at the same time. But that's really when Universal was then transforming into a resort. We were building, and I was you know, director of advertising brand at Islands of Adventure when that was being built. And then we were adding hotels and city walks. So that was the first time, my last year there was the first time that we actually spent national media to drive people to Orlando because now we were trying to replicate what you did. We were trying to replicate getting someone on property, giving them a full experience from A to Z and, and basically sucking up their time so they couldn't spend time at Disney. Now, you know, everybody's going to spend time at Disney if they're coming to Orlando, but, but it was a lot of fun uh, during this. Yeah, I remember sure. um, a group of us from marketing did a, uh, a little benchmark competitive visit to Islands of Adventure in the first few days that it opened. And, and that was an eye opener because it was like, oh, okay. I mean, these guys are using a high degree of storytelling here. This is really done with excellence. I mean, when you think about a a ride like Spider-Man that still holds up today. Uh, yeah, we knew it was on when when uh, Universal opened up that second that second gate and uh, started building hotels like the Portofino Bay Hotel, which was beautifully done as well. I remember walking the Spider-Man ride. I, I should do a separate podcast on the building of Islands of Adventure because we literally would go into the theme park with hard hats and our construction badges, photography badges, so that we could do, you know, get the artists for key art and photography. And I remember walking around with one of the creative guys and we were walking through dirt tracks in Spider-Man and he'd say, okay, right here, there's going to be a 3D screen. And then over here, we're gonna hit you with heat coming down and the, the ride is gonna spin around and uh, just, just fun, fun, fun memories. But you're right. I mean, I think they upped their game and uh, at that time, and it, and Orlando has benefited, I believe. Boy, at that time, I want to say maybe 40 million people came to Orlando annually, visitors, and that's more than double now. Yeah, you you bring back great memories for me because one of my favorite things uh, that was that I did at Disney was just to be in lockstep with the Imagineers during that early design 
phase of something that was coming out. And I remember walking the grounds of Animal Kingdom before it, it came out and, and hearing the presentations from, you know, now uh, Disney Imagineering legends like Joe Rohde just sort of walking through what, what this is going to be. And so then our wheels and marketing would start churning. Okay, how do we tell the, that they've created a great story here. How do we tell the ongoing story uh, to people that have short attention spans, you know, while, while they're watching TV or now today, uh, scrolling through the social media, you have to figure out how to boil something as massive as that down into something simple. And, you know, for Animal Kingdom, we knew the danger was, uh, people are just going to think is, oh, it's Disney's making a zoo. And, and we're like, no, this is not, not a zoo. In fact, one of our TV spots was uh, using the African word, not a zoo to explain, <laughs> to explain. <laughs> Very animal, clever. You know, but our, you know, our underlying positioning for that was, it, this is the imagination of Disney gone wild. You know, you're going to, yes, you're going to see real animals, but they're going to be in like real settings. You're going to feel like you're in Africa, uh, you're not going to feel like you're walking into a theme park. It's going to feel real. And, and just, uh, you know, seeing those ideas unfold, it, that was just such a, such a very special thing about being in a place like Disney or Universal. And that really is the challenge for marketers that, that we both had during those days. You will spend hours and days and weeks and months talking to the creative geniuses behind these rides. How do we take that? massive information and create relevant marketing messages to get people to come visit. You're never going to be able to tell the whole story. You're never going to be. So it's, it is those nuggets. I love that. I'd never heard that before. Disney gone wild. I love that. We used to think about uh, because Disney was the, the, and still is the iconic brand in Orlando. We used to think about how do we attract guests and differentiate ourselves from Disney? At that time, Disney did not have as many roller coasters and thrill rides as we did. We used to think about it as Disney is the place that you take your child and you hold her hand and you hold your little girl's hand and you see her awe and wonder as she looks at Cinderella's castle for the first time. And, and there's nothing on this planet that can compete with that. And we'd be foolish at Universal to try to compete with that. You can't. Our thought and our theory and our brand positioning that wasn't ever a consumer communicated brand, this was more internally how we thought about it was, Disney's a place you go for your children and Universal's a place you go so you can experience it with your child, with your teenager. And so that gave us a little latitude Good. to be a little more on edge, a little more mm -hmm. teen, a little more brash maybe a little bit. A little, yeah. You know. Well, and, and uh, they've gone back to that strategy. I don't know if you've seen some of their recent work, I have. but uh, it's kind of like they're positioning it as uh, now that you, your kids have outgrown Disney, it's time to go to Universal. And uh, I think it's smart because, uh, you know, Disney has amped up the thrills a bit, but it still doesn't compare to Universal when it comes to the IP that they use and the, the thrill element of some of the rides. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Matt Ferguson, the Chief Innovation Officer at Storyland Studios. If you'd like to watch this podcast, head over to our website at marketingchiefpodcast.com and click on the Episodes tab or search for Marketing Chief Podcast on YouTube. So Matt, you went from theme park world into the advertising world and had 20 plus years 
you know, really going up the ranks of advertising and then becoming managing director, I believe was your title, right, at, at Mower. Talk a little bit about that side of the business. Yeah, you know, the, the advertising agency business is a lot of fun. And uh, I had done it for a little bit before I went to Disney. And um, actually for Price McNabb, the agency that I came back to. But the thing that uh, I did miss about the agency world was being able to work for such a variety of brands, you know, over my, you know, almost 20 years with uh, Price McNabb, which eventually merged with a larger company and became Mower. Um, I felt like I had a hundred plus jobs over that time. There was so much variety because we got to work with so many different types of clients and Disney was probably the best corporate marketing job I could have had in terms of variety because of all the things that we got to work on from sports to theme parks to resorts, but, but you're still working for one brand. And so, you know, I really did enjoy that previous experience of diving in, really learning about a company and then figuring out how to tell their story. And uh, so, so now I can go to a party and talk five minutes on almost any subject because, you know, I've dived into these businesses and, and learned about them. So that's just one of the fascinating things about advertising. Uh, that I love. And then we were more of an integrated marketing agency. So yes, I worked on TV commercials and all of the typical advertising, you know, now social media, but uh, really we, we did branding for clients. So we got to figure out what their core branding story was and tell that. And then, you know, everything from advertising to PR to immersive experiences. Uh, so that that variety, it was just amazing that, that you can have in the agency world. You really get exposure to a lot of different verticals that way, a lot of different, honestly, management styles of different companies. What do you think makes a good, good strong advertising, no matter the vertical? What, what are the tenets of things that make a good communication message? Yeah, I mean, it really does come down to the core story. You know, you better have that right before you start talking about that story in different uh, media. And then from there, you have to have the mindset that nobody is sitting around wanting to see your advertising. Like we've all <laughs> That's right. know, watched the TV commercial or we've scrolled through our, our feeds and seen stuff that just looks stupid and you just wanna keep scrolling or you wanna go get a, a snack or if you're in the car uh, listening to the radio or Pandora, you wanna skip. Uh, because it's just so much of it is so bad. And so I think if you can maintain that mindset that nobody wants to watch, listen, pay attention to your advertising, then suddenly you realize, okay, I have to make this creative. I have to make this interesting. I have to make this entertain, entertaining. Um, I have to draw people in before I can just hit them over the head with the point that I want to make. You can't just like push out your message and expect somebody to receive it. But you have to draw them in uh, with storytelling, frankly. We recently came out of the Super Bowl and that's sometimes thought about as a uh, hallmark or highlight moment for creative advertising. Anything that struck you this year as particularly good or, or bad? There weren't a lot that really grabbed me and that, that drew me in. Obviously the one that was most talked about was the Bruce Springsteen uh, Jeep ad. What were your um, thoughts on that one? It, you know, it was beautifully done. 
Um, I loved the, the message of hope and unity that they had, but I, you know, I, I believe it probably felt fell flat with half of America because Bruce Springsteen is, is famously partisan. You know, he, 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 you know, whatever your views are, he, he's on the left. He's made that very clear over yeah, many he's, years. He's, he's not the middle, which was the, yeah, not the point the middle, of the spot. So I, right? I, I felt like it was a miss. Like if they, I understand using a celebrity to grab attention, but they probably missed an opportunity to use a, a celebrity that just is not political either way to have that unity and message. But it was beautifully done with the, uh, just the way it was filmed. Um, it was a, a little oasis of quietness in the middle of uh, all the frenetic uh, spots that typically come on the Super Bowl. So from that standpoint, it was, it was well done. The one that was funny to me, or that I think resonated the most, only probably because I think they, from my standpoint, they've done the best at continuing the campaign after the Super Bowl. So I've seen these ads over and over again, is the Rocket Mortgage ad with Tracy Morgan. And that's yeah. where they talk about uh, certain is better. You know, the, the, the family comes up and says, well, I think I can afford this much house. And it's like, you think you can? Are you sure? Yeah. And then they have all of these different scenarios. And now what I, I, I find humorous, I find it a, a pretty easy brand message to understand. And again, I think they've done a really good job of continuing that messaging post Super Bowl. So it, it does kind of burn in your mind. I really would have to look up what some of those other Super Bowl ads were. Yeah. Because to your point, none of them really kind of hit me in, in, in an impactful way. As you've grown in your career, you've had some really good mentors and influences. Talk to me a little bit about, about Charlie Price and about what you learned from him and his impact on your career. Yeah, Charlie Price was the founder of Price McNabb, which uh, eventually folded into Mower. Uh, but, you know, one, one of the things that I learned from Charlie is he had a real uh, empowering uh, influence style of leadership. He wasn't the command and control type. Um, he never micromanaged. Uh, and, and that was really before his time. Nowadays, a lot of studies have come out and said that uh, the old command and control doesn't work anymore and that influence is, is the leadership style that really works in the modern age. But uh, Charlie had that even then. You know, he, uh, he, he just uh, had that way about him. And one of the things was he was just the, the consummate gentleman. You know, he kind of reminds me of that Maya Angelou quote that says, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Charlie made people feel good. You were a client of ours, so you probably experienced that, right? Charlie was the perfect gentleman and he he was the one who introduced us as a matter of yes. fact and he just uh, sad that we lost him this year your, your tribute to him was amazing and, and spot on because he was he, he was a gentle giant I mean he was really a smart smart man who built a really great agency um, but he I mean was, he built that agency from Asheville North Carolina and for those that are listening uh, nationally it's a it's kind of a cool little mountain resort town in North Carolina. And then mm -hmm. eventually uh, the company had offices in 
Raleigh, Charlotte, and Columbia as well, and then uh, eventually consolidated everything in Charlotte once technology allowed that. But uh, yeah, and, and relationships were everything with Charlie. I mean, he checked in on people on a regular basis. I, uh, you know, while I was at Disney, I heard from Charlie, you know, after I'd left. And so that when, you know, four years or so later, when they called and said, what would you think about coming back? I still had a warm feeling about Charlie. And uh, he was famous for his handwritten notes. Uh, a lot of times you, you, you had to really work to read those notes because his handwriting was a bit <laughs> like a doctor, but uh, he was uh, just, just an awesome guy. And I learned so much from him. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you all the lessons that I learned. Yeah, he, he was great. And, and handwritten notes are very impactful still today. They are. Yeah. When I worked for Hurston Family Entertainment, Joel Manby, who's their CEO, talks often about how Jack Hurston, one of the founders, would send notes. And Joel would send notes as well. I can count on one hand the number of written notes I've received from someone I've worked for. I probably still have them all because they're impactful, because it means something yeah. when a leader can take the time to recognize your work or recognize that you've overcome an adversity or you've achieved some success um, or that they're just behind you. Hey, they're just, we're thinking about you and we're just behind you. Those are so important. Our listeners probably don't know, unless they know Matt Ferguson, that Matt Ferguson was a division one football player at Florida State University under coach Bobby Bowden, one of the greatest coaches of all time. I say that very biasedly. What did you learn from, from coach Bowden? Well, first of all, there's no bias behind that statement. It's just a fact because he is, you know, second winning as coach in history, second only to uh, Joe Paterno. Um, and then de depending on how they recognize wins or not, he could be number one. He was for a while. But uh, anyway, he's one of the best all time. The results, the results show it. And, um, you know, it, it was really like a leadership grad school sitting under his leadership for four years. Um, and, you know, I was there right at the beginning of what they call the dynasty, which is 14 straight top four finishes, 14 straight years of top four finishes. That is uh, really yeah. crazy. Crazy. I mean, Alabama almost caught us a couple of years ago uh, with eight. They weren't even close, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Coach Bowden picked up a couple of national championships along the way. I was at the first one. All right. Yes. Oh, that's the first one in the Orange Awesome. Um, but, you know, he was also kind of uh, one of the early examples of that inspiring, you know, more inspirational influencer, uh, motivational brand of, of uh, leadership. He wasn't a dictator. He hired great people and empowered them to do their jobs. He let the assistant coaches do their jobs. Uh, he was also an innovator, like some of the crazy plays that he came up with mm -hmm. and uh, he inspired that innovation among his other coaches as well. And he had a sense of humor. So he was just fun to work for, fun to play for. And uh, I just can't say enough about all that I learned about uh, leadership from coach Bobby Bowden. And he's still sharp, but I think he's going to turn 92 this year. Uh, still as sharp as attack and uh, slowing down a little bit, but still going out and speaking some. And uh, he's just an amazing man. I can't say enough about him. Okay, quick, quick, uh, quick, easy answer, easy questions for you now. 
agency side or client side? Oh man, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. It depends on, depends uh, on the day, <laughs> the client, I guess. But uh, no, I mean, I've spent the the vast majority of my uh, my years on the agency side, so I think that probably speaks to where I lean. Anything that you are binging on TV now that you would recommend? Uh, I mean, obviously, WandaVision was an incredible, and now we're we're into uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, being the the Disney Marvel uh, nerd that I am. Yes, uh, that's that's keeping my attention these days. Toughest football game you've ever played in? Oh gosh, I mean, when when we were there, our big rivalry was with Miami, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know they were we were both usually number one, two, three at any given time. And so they were really more of our nemesis than even the Florida Gators were at the time. We uh, beat the Gators all four years that I was there. So very nice. Miami. And I like to tell my kids that my senior year when Miami and Florida state took the field, you know, Dwayne, the rock Johnson was on one side of the field and your dad was on the other. And by the way, we weighed the same amount I don't know what happened to me versus him. I shrunk and he got jacked. But uh, yeah, that's just a fun little bit of trivia there. Most exciting sports pen- sports pinnacle. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, w- we won all four of our major bowl games while we were there. And that was pretty cool. Fiesta Bowl twice. Uh, Sugar Bowl on a last second interception by uh, Deion Sanders. Primetime. So yeah. you, played, you played with primetime. I didn't think yeah. I realized that. Talk about a marketing genius. He is a marketing genius. He's doing great things. That is Jackson State. Is that where he is? Jackson State. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But Dion, uh, a lot of a lot of people don't really think of this, but Dion was about the hardest working person I've ever been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, he has a lot of natural ability to run a 4240 but uh, <laughs> um but he, he got there through a lot of hard work as mm-hmm. well and uh and he was a lot of fun to be around he was a great teammate uh, we used to cringe a little bit when he would get in front of the press and, and talk <laughs> uh gave the other team some locker room material uh more than once but uh he would also back it up when he was out there on the field so can't say enough about Dion. matt so great to talk to you today i really appreciate your time been fun reminiscing talking about experiential marketing just advertising in general hearing your thoughts i wish you much success at storyland studios hope that we can do this again uh, after you can reveal some of your secret projects sounds good let's do it it's always fun to catch up all right thanks matt appreciate it thanks rob if you like what you hear hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified when new episodes are posted Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Marketing Chief Podcast.